Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a superb show for you today. That's the chosen adjective for us. <laughs> what do you think, Brianna? I think it's a good one and an accurate one. <laughs> well, today we'll be discussing a new bill that could cut the Pentagon's bloated budget significantly. We'll also dig into the Supreme Court's church and state ruling that we debated a little bit yesterday, Robbie, at this time with an expert, Eric Siegel, a law professor and constitutional expert, and Hold on to your horses. Kim <laughs> Iverson is back Yay. from her honeymoon, and she will tell us what's on her radar later in the show. So excited to have Kim back. We can't wait. However, uh, before we get to Kim, we're going to discuss the Federal Reserve. Exciting, sexy stuff. <laughs> Yesterday, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell testified in front of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. Powell answered questions regarding inflation and broke from the White House over the economic impacts of the war in Ukraine. Let's watch that. In January of 2021, inflation was at 1.4%. By December of 2021, it had risen to 7%, a five-fold increase. Now, since the war in Ukraine began in late February, the rate of inflation has risen incrementally, another 1.6% to a current level of 8.6%. So again, uh, from 7% to 8.6%. Given how inflation has escalated over the past 18 months, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? No, inflation was high before, certainly before the uh, war in Ukraine broke out. Mm, so much for Putin's price hike. Well, Powell also addressed the possibility of a recession as the Fed prepares for more interest rate hikes in efforts to contain inflation and added that a recession is not out intended outcome at all. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, look, I, I, all fairness, I do think that a lot of the Putin price hike stuff was specifically about gas prices. I think it got a little sloppy and wishy-washy and became the excuse for, you know, a, a, a lid for every pot, as it were. Um, but yeah, I think... This has been the fundamental problem with the Biden administration's approach to this. It has been obvious to everyone for a long time that he's been using the war as an excuse not to engage with some of the other substantive things that have happened on his watch. And it's not that we aren't open to, and even many Americans, I think, very sympathetic to the idea that there are going to be some consequences and sacrifices they are willing to make to intervene on the behalf of Ukrainians. But when you use that excuse more broadly than is applicable, you come off as a bad faith actor and you lose trust. Right, right. And actually, I want to get to this uh, this clip from Biden uh, right away because I wanted to address this. He kind of exactly discusses what you just said. President Biden addressed the nation, called on Congress to pass a gas tax holiday, something we talked about yesterday that would make savings marginal. And then Biden scolded Republicans for criticizing high gas prices, saying, quote, are you now saying we were wrong to support Ukraine? Are you saying we would rather have low gas prices in America than Putin's iron fist in Europe? So Biden acknowledged that the tax holiday won't fix the pain of the pump, but would provide some breathing room. Um, however, the Washington Post is reporting that some White House officials are at odds with the president over the tax uh, holiday. Top Treasury officials expressed doubt and said it would do little, little to significantly lower gas prices. Um, the measure will now face its fate on the Hill, where members of both parties have expressed criticism of the suspension. But, yeah, I wanted to address that Biden quote there. That is him laying it out, saying, well, we have to help Ukraine, so you just have to deal with higher gas prices, higher prices of everything. Didn't you know that that's – you have to sacrifice? But no one, that, no one was told – like, who voted on that sacrifice? Who empowered the administration to do that? Yeah. If you put that to a vote, you think the American people agree? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Ga- higher gas prices to help Ukraine. Yeah. I don't think that's a majority position. Well, look, there was, I will say, a few months ago, the polling was very high in terms of support for Ukraine. And I think in terms of general sentiment, vibes, people are still, a lot of liberals at least, and I think some conservatives as well are pretty supportive of the idea that here's a population that we have to stand with, you know, broadly speaking. What they didn't get into, though, at the time that the conflict started, or our involvement in the conflict started, was how long it was going to last and exactly what the consequences were going to be for the American people. So relying on some vague poll that says, do you want to support Ukraine, right. is foolish. Right, because of course, of course we support Ukraine. Of course we wish Vladimir Putin had not made the decision to invade the country. That was a evil thing to do, and he should suffer consequences. If he suffered consequences for that, they would be perfectly well justified. But that doesn't obligate us to do something about it. Just because something is wrong or inhumane or, or evil, like that, if we always have to intervene, if we always have to do something, yeah. if the American people also always have to sacrifice in order for our, our government to do something, that obligates us to interfere everywhere. What yeah. about the people of North Korea? What about the people of Yemen? What yeah. about in every corner of the globe? Yeah. There is wrongdoing, and they're suffering, and they're suffering here. Mm. They're suffering in the U.S. right now as a result of this. Yeah, and that's what people are talking about. I was in the comment section of some random, you know, Instagram post the other day. Why are you time in the comment section, Brianna? <laughs> well, I think you know, for someone who is not out with the youth as the way that I used to do, mm-hmm. and only get so many opportunities to talk to people every day because I, you know, I don't work in a you know big office place or have a regular nine to five. I, I read the comments to get a sense of what people what people are talking about, and even though the post was kind of unrelated, all of the comments were, "Oh, I bet I bet you have money for Ukraine. Where's mm-hmm. the money for us?" It was a, it was a political post, but on on a on a pop culture website like the the you know one of these hip hop sites or something like that, and everyone was talking about the contrast between how easily the U.S. government seems to be able to come up with money for Ukraine and how quickly they're cutting all these you know food uh, lunch programs and all these other kinds of things that are geared toward Americans. So look, I think that they're right that there was support for Ukraine, but it's a lot of things that I support and I want in the abstract before you start asking me about what it's going to take to get it. You know, I love abs. It's summer season. <laughs> the question is, is Brianna Gray going to wake up and get to the gym every morning the way she needs to do? Mm. But there's also just no plan either for Ukraine. It's just a, it's just an endless stream of money we have to send them. Yeah. As, for as long as this conflict goes on, and this conflict could go on forever. It's not like they said, okay, here is, so we're going to send this amount of money, and this is the deadline, yeah. and this is what we want them to do. No, we've just said, yeah, okay, we'll just keep sending the money. And we oh, can you vote more money? Well, and we didn't demand it as a, as a people either. I think the no. American voters aren't really used to a, a, a level of nuanced political conversation where they can say something like, yeah, I support Ukraine, but on what, on what conditions? Mm-hmm. You know what? You know what are the what are the, what are the parameters of this commitment? I will support you. Don't just ask 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 for my jingoistic flag waving patriotic support on things. Let's talk specifically about what you're asking of me. Um, but because they make they frame everything in these uh, jingoistic kind of. Uh, nationalist arguments, you know, you're either with us or against us. And remember, these were Democrats who were really beating that drum. The same Democrats who thought it was so ridiculous when George Bush, too, used to make these kinds of arguments were really yeah. beating the war path All those people have Ukraine. Ukrainian flags in there. Right. They're more likely to have Ukrainian fl- be flying Ukrainian flags than American flags, uh, which, whatever, I, right? I'm not saying rah, rah patriotism or anything like that, but it's just become a, a tribal signifier. It it's has. become part of the Democratic, the Team Blue identity. And I, I just think foreign policy, there, there's no account, 
uh, no accountability whatsoever for for suspect foreign policy calls like the the sanctions against Russia just have not worked yeah totally did not work as as was anticipated by many critics of sanctions yes. so when you keep doing things that don't work, and then, of course, our nation building in the Middle East doesn't work, so many of the things that the sort of bipartisan foreign policy blob does, they fail over and over again. How many times can these people's strategies fail before the American people who don't want this get heard? Yeah, I mean, I do wish, and I've said this before on the show, that there were at least just a little flexibility among elected officials. Okay, you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You don't have to double down. Say, look, we thought a few months ago when we were talking about this that there was more support among the American people for this war than there is. We've got to be realistic about you know, what harms we're willing to inflict on our own. We support Ukraine. We hope that they do well. Right. I'm looking home for good outcomes for the people of Ukraine. But it's hard to rationalize say, why we're spending our funds on this particular conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could say, look, we thought early on the, the Russian army looked a lot weaker than we thought. We expected that perhaps uh, leveling a lot of pain on the Russian regime right away could actually cause them, deter them from further action, and that was worth doing. It didn't work, and clearly there is not support among the American people for continuing in such a way that we have we exacerbate high gas prices, high other uh, high uh, bad economic outcomes. So we're we're reversing course. They could just say that that's what the people want from them, but they don't. Yeah. Mm. All right, well, I look forward to hearing what's on your radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? (laughs) Well, Robbie, buckle up, free speech warriors. We have a live one, this time in the form of a decision from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Yesterday, the court upheld an Arkansas law which forces anyone contracting with the state to pledge a loyalty oath. That's right. If you want to do business with the state of Arkansas, the state now has the right to force you to pledge in writing that you will not participate in a boycott of Israel. In effect, the ruling says that boycotts are not protected by the First Amendment. Here are the details. The Arkansas law went into effect in 2017. Under the law, if a contractor refused to sign a loyalty pledge, their fees would be reduced by 20%. In 2018, the ACLU filed suit to challenge the law. The law was tested when the state tried to compel the CEO of the Arkansas Times, a local paper, to sign the pledge. Now, for years, the Arkansas Times had run ads for a state school in the local paper. The CEO had no plans to join the boycott, divest, and sanction movement, but he refused to make his newspaper submit to the ideological edicts of the state. And so the state of Arkansas terminated its contract with the Arkansas Times. This is a clear-cut First Amendment case, and the court recognized it as such. The majority opinion explained that constitutional violations may arise from the deterrent or chilling effect of the government's efforts that fall short of a direct prohibition against the exercise of the First Amendment. As a result, the government cannot, through funding conditions, indirectly impair the freedom of speech, which would, which if directly attempted, would be unconstitutional. Now that seems pretty straightforward. Seems like what's happening here. The state is coercing contractors to censor their own political expression via the BDS movement. But get this, the court decided that the BDS movement 
which to be clear is designed to put economic pressure on Israel so that it will respect the human rights and territorial claims of Palestinians, is somehow not inherently expressive political speech. Because boycotting Israel is technically an economic maneuver and not one involving literal speech, the court held that it is not expressive conduct. Now, the court relied on a case, which I remember well as it was litigated while I was in school. The case involved several law schools who wanted to bar military recruiters from campus in protest of the military's don't ask, don't tell policy, which, as a refresher, excluded openly gay people from serving their country. In a truly dystopian move, the court then held that the federal government could make federal funding contingent on allowing military recruiters on campus because, again, the law school's refusal was apparently not inherently expressive conduct. Without literal speech, the court argued that no one would understand why a school refused to allow military recruiters on campus. So then preventing a school from enacting a ban on military recruiters was not considered to be limiting expression. Now, if that seems absurd to you, you are not alone. The court and the Don't Ask, Don't Tell case argued that what really mattered was whether a neutral observer would understand that the school, what the school was trying to express by banning military recruiters. But everyone knew why schools were trying to bar military recruiters. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a hugely polarizing cultural issue at the time. At my college, there was regular picketing and flyering in public spaces about our school's efforts to protest the ban on gays in the military. Here's a school newspaper story from my sophomore year. And my freshman year, 46 law professors sent a letter to then-president Larry Summers urging Harvard to participate in the litigation. The reason was not opaque. The reason was gay rights. Just like BDS is not a movement in a vacuum. It's a movement for freedom, justice, and equality for Palestinian people. But apparently, the Eighth Circuit is really not sending their best. The court found that if a company were to post anti-Israel signs, donate to causes that promote a boycott of Israel, or encourage others to boycott Israel, or even to publicly criticize the act, it would be protected by the First Amendment, and the Arkansas law could not stand. However, the purely commercial boycott, which to be clear, is done with the express purpose of securing a range of rights for Palestinians, is made magically non-expressive political speech because, I don't know, words. <laughs> to make their not very sound point, the court and defendants repeatedly draw an analogy to a 1982 case called NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware, in which black citizens boycotted white merchants in Mississippi in order to pressure the white-owned businesses to commit to various demands for equality and racial, racial justice. The stores sued to recover their losses and to block future boycotts, but the court sided with the NAACP, saying their boycott was protected speech. Now, truly, the only way the current court, the, the court in the Arkansas case, distinguishes the NAACP case from the Arkansas case is by pointing to the fact that the black Mississippians, quote, sought equal respect and equal treatment to which they were constitutionally entitled, and did so verbally with signs and picketing, as well as boycotting whereas the BDS boycott is framed as purely economic, as though BDS is about randomly wanting to stick it to Israel and not very specific human rights goals, like equal respect and equal treatment. So here we are, yet another clear form of political expression vulnerable to being barred 
by the state. ACLU lawyer Brian House has pointed out that this country was founded on a boycott of British goods. Moreover, liberal Jewish groups who oppose BDS filed briefs in support of the plaintiffs, arguing that although they do not support BDS, the decision is, quote, extremely dangerous because it essentially says that boycott itself, the economic activity, is not protected free speech. Former ACLU attorney Glenn Greenwald called it, quote, absolutely horrible, saying you either believe in free speech or you don't. Now, in light of the conversation we had yesterday about the decision which bars the state of Maine from making educational funding for religious schools contingent on a secular curriculum, it will be interesting to see if the Supreme Court says you can't deny funding to a religious school, even though the First Amendment bars the establishment of religion, but you can deny funding to a newspaper for failing to adopt the viewpoint of the state. Robbie, these, these keep coming fast and furious, and it is mind-boggling to me that there is not more outrage about this. Yeah, I mean, probably not going to surprise you. I agree completely with you. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to uh, fight about here. Um, I, I take a very, very broad view, and really so does the, the Supreme Court, to be frank, about what counts as speech. So I, I'd have to imagine the Supreme Court would feel differently about this. Um, it, it, it's, yes, well, it's we'll, clearly, we'll see. We'll see, but it, it's clearly, to my mind, protected speech that you can't. I mean, we saw what that. we saw what just happened in this main case, though, right? Yeah. And, you know, I know we had some disagreement about it. And we, we talked today with a, a constitutional law professor about what's going on there. But there do seem to be these inconsistencies where the way the Supreme Court has held over time in various areas of the law is now radically changing. And Professor Siegel argued it's because of the religious and political uh, makeup of the court. Uh, and of course, we've had conservative courts in the past, but specifically... I, mean, I don't think it's because of the religious makeup of the court. The court is what majority is, right, supermajority Catholic. Yes. Um, I, don't, I don't know that their Catholicism... Um, Affects whether or not they there. have a, a different approach to funding of I mean, religious institutions, bit, most of which are Catholic in the United no, States of America, so. as compared to I, their I really desire to protect the right to boycott. Yeah especially in this context where BDS has been so politicized. I mean, it's obviously a political issue, but it has been characterized so frequently as an anti-Semitic movement, a hate movement, and a movement that says, I just don't like Israelis, when it obviously has nothing to do with that or what's going on with the Israeli people as much as any other sanctions are supposed to be about, oh, I just hate some random dude in Russia. No, it's supposed to be about, this, in the same way that um, the boycott uh, movement in South Africa was about pressuring the country to respect the rights of black South Africans. This is very much the same thing. And the rationale in the opinion that tries to disentangle boycotts as something that's purely commercial. Yeah, that's obviously ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's just indefensible. You can yeah. do it. I mean, you right. can make the argument. They did make the argument. But the, when they were talking about the NAACP case, it's like, okay, there was a commercial component. They're obviously boycotting the business. They, they lost business. But they were basically like, well, they had signs. They had flyers. They were outside advocating for racial justice. So anybody who saw the boycott understands its political expression. Therefore, that is constitutionally I mean, the Supreme protected. Court has held that plenty of maybe not commercial, but financial kind of stuff is speech, right? Campaign contributions can't be limited because they're Absolutely. a component of speech. We're, we're taking a very broad view of what counts as speech. Conservatives have said that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the sort of forced to bake a cake 
kind of categories of speech or forced wedding photographer. That's expressive. That's speech. That's the view. Yes. Uh, I, and I, I share that view. So you, you can't uh, you can't compel people to uh, to do to do services in yeah. that in that respect if they violate some principle they have because that's compelled speech. Seems pretty seems pretty uh, similar to this. Yeah. So, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the commentary is going to be like about this over the yeah. coming weeks and whether we do get you know I some people on the left. Sometimes I agree with them and sometimes I don't. We'll say, look, there's a lot of conversation about free speech in this country and a lot of hand-wringing that comes specifically from more conservative parts of this country about all of these threats of free speech. And the right has really owned this idea that they are the free speech warriors. But I got to say, there is a notable amount of silence when you have these huge cases coming down, whether they're these constitutional cases or these uh, circuit court cases like this one from the Eighth Circuit, that have an enormous uh, effect on the state's direct infringements of, of rights. Not some campus professor said something I didn't like, or maybe I got a bad grade, or I had to quit my job because everyone was angry at me at Georgetown. No, this is the state saying you have to pledge a loyalty oath in order to get a contract. And we all know that state contracting is one of the, the biggest sources of jobs. You might not like that, but it is one of the biggest sor sources of employers in, in the country. So, um, Hopefully, this is one of those areas like when we're talking about military intervention where we can really have simpatico between the right and the left and calling out these kinds of injustices and, and, and having social pressure to make sure that these kinds of laws are no longer promulgated. Yeah, I think you just straightforwardly can't have a loyalty oath test as a part of uh, a public employment and that's just obviously a free speech First Amendment violation, but we'll yeah. find out. But. I agree with you. Well, it's nice. We it's agree nice on this to one. Agree. There's nothing we don't to argue about. I just fight. completely agree. With you. We don't Sometimes, have we to fight, Sometimes we agree. Sometimes we agree. Let's take the win. Let's take the wins when we get them. Oh. We'll have more rising for you after this. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic? that you will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that you take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which you are about to enter. So help you God. Congratulations, you are now a member of the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi swore in Texas's 34th district's new representative on Tuesday. Republican Myra Flores flipped what had been a blue seat into a red one after winning a special election. I have risen from working in the cotton fields to representing the community I love in the United States Congress, and I will give them a voice. That Flores was able to make inroads in a deeply blue district is the latest proof that Democrats might be in serious trouble come November. Joining us now to discuss the looming midterms and the potential doom Democrats are facing is Max Alvarez, the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network, and Marissa Martinez, a Republican strategist and partner at Strategic Rush. Welcome to you both. So, Max, you know, it's we've been talking about this for weeks, maybe months now, about how bad things look for the Democratic Party. Uh, this is just another sign that the voters are not materializing where they're supposed to, that the Republicans are doing better and better with uh, minority voters, with Latino voters. Um, you know, what do you make of the Flores win? So it's... Um 
I guess that. Right? I think like I think the uh, thing that I would stress right is that um, like I put on my my DNC hat for a second, right? Because I'm seeing all these sort of democratic party strategists say like this isn't a panic moment. This was like a special sort of election that you know was we're gonna have re, a redistricted map in effect during in the next kind of like full election at this district. And I mean, chances are Flores like will lose that. I'm not saying that's a given, but I see why the Democratic Party thinks that when the new map is in effect, um, you know, and given the fact that when this special election kind of cropped up, you know, uh, Flores was, you know, strategically at a bit more of an advantage with Sanchez kind of like not being prepared, not having the kind of apparatus and campaign apparatus set up. Yada, yada, yada. Right. So, like, there's a lot of, you know, people in the Democratic Party saying that this, this is is not a panic moment. And I think I understand that and agree with it to a certain extent. But I don't think that, you know, like this can just be waved away. Right. As you said, like this district has been heavily blue for a long time. Like and the fact that Mayra Flores uh, won this seat uh, in a district that's over 80 uh, percent Hispanic. Um, that, um, you know, like this district, uh, like hasn't had a, a, a non-democratic representative for a long, long time like that. Yeah, that is significant. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of reasons for this. I, I'm always hesitant, whether it's on the Democratic or Republican side to, you know, like overblow, you know, Latino voting trends because it like always drives me nuts how we talk about Latinos as this sort of monolith when we're all very different. We all have very different reasons for voting the way that we do. And Latinos and Hispanics in general, right, like make up, you know, a massive um, voting block in this country, but historically have had lowest voter participation out of any minority group. That did change a bit in 2020, where you saw a massive surge in young voter registration. I think the real thing I'm looking at is, are those young voters going to come back in this election and right now I'm not so sure that they will I mean but I think like before we start essentializing what is going on in the quote-unquote Latino mind right now I think you know the main thing we have to remember is that by and large the thing that's gonna drive a lot of people's voting habits in the upcoming elections uh, is gas prices right <laughs> and so I think like that's that's what was always on the, the mouths of my family growing up in Southern California. You can almost trace, you know, who voted for whom, depending on how high the gas prices mm -hmm. was. So it doesn't have to be about, oh, we're traditional, God-loving, you know, like yada yada people. You know, sometimes it's a lot more basic than that. Yeah, Marissa, what do you make of that? You know, is, is this, as Max says, um, not reflective of some broader trends? Or should Democrats be concerned among other things, about the fact that the trend of Latino voters moving more to the Democratic Party is something that's been going on for years now. Um, people were surprised that Trump had gotten a, you know, a historically notable uh, percentage of the Latino vote, despite what people saw as him making statements that were antagonistic to um, Mexicans, for instance, specifically, and immigrants more broadly. Obviously, the campaign was very centered on the wall. You know, do you think that Democrats are being naive when they say, oh, this isn't a harbinger of something worse? Well, th thanks again for having me today. I think the Democrats definitely need to take note of Myra Flores' win in Texas's 34th congressional district. Um, she beat out Dan Sanchez by um, almost eight points, I believe. 
And I think what we're seeing with Mara Flores, we've been seeing it since 2020. We saw it with Nicole Malitakis' historic win, uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks, uh, Michelle Fishbach, Michelle Steele, Nancy Mace, uh, Claudia Tenney. The list kind of goes on and on. But this is an even broader trend of having female Republican representation. And I think we're going to continue to see that in a very strong red wave. Yeah. Marissa, do you think that uh, on the Republican side, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, sort of concern about, uh, you know, you hear about a great replacement, et cetera, you know, it's in the farther farther right corners, but the idea that if you bring in too many um, non-white people and their voters, you know, this is going to spell doom for the, for the Republican Party. This is kind of something Democrats used to brag about, right, in the in the sort of wake of the Obama coalition. You know, we're replacing the, uh, the, the kind of voter who votes Republican. Now that it's turned out that that is an utterly discredited idea, that actually Republicans can perform very well with, uh, with voters who are non-white, that, that, that the Republican message um, that uh, you know that uh, they, their immigrants can be more socially conservative. They many of them anti-socialist. Those kinds of things do res, uh, resonate with uh, Latino voters and other immigrant communities. Is there going to be a is there a rethinking taking place in the Republican Party uh, about those kinds of subjects? Just as maybe things are not so rosy for the Democrats, Republicans should reframe their thinking about this as well. Um, I think at the end of the day, right now. A lot of um, GOP operatives and the GOP itself, um, we've really been focused on kind of the issues that that, that tend to matter. So in inflation, um, securing the southern border. Um, right now, gas prices, um, I'm in California and we're almost at $7 a gallon. So I think, you know, always being able to rethink some messaging and strategy is critical and important in any election for any party. But I think at the end of the day, you know, kind of having a sense for what voters are focused on and, you know, what average families are going are going through, that's always going to be key. Hmm. Yeah, I do remember when Donica Rollam, who was the first, I believe, openly uh, you know, trans candidate to win uh, a congressional seat, when people asked her what, what enabled her to win and what was considered to be a conservative district, she said, look, I just talked about fixing the roads. We had a down traffic light. I really stuck to these uh, kitchen table issues, as it were. And I do wonder if sometimes the Democratic Party's focus on identity politics in a way that is not actually substantive or geared toward the needs of those communities that they are talking about and rarely talking to is actually hurting their political uh, uh, successes in the long run. I appreciate both of you for joining us here today. Thanks, guys. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. Yesterday on the show, we covered a controversial new Supreme Court ruling that permits the use of publicly funded tuition assistance programs by students attending religious schools. In a 6-3 vote, the court's conservative majority ruled that the state of Maine's ban on the use of taxpayer funds for non-secular education violates the First Amendment's protection of religious expression. According to Time Magazine, civil rights advocates previously warned such a ruling would, quote, take a wrecking ball to the separation of church and state. So we decided to bring in a legal expert to answer all of our questions about the ruling and its implications. Joining us now is Eric Siegel. He's a professor of law and Ash Family Chair at the Georgia State University College of Law. Welcome, Professor. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, Bree and I had a kind of contentious uh, debate about this uh, yesterday, although I guess we were more arguing, or at least I was arguing, about the, the merits of the proposal, uh, less so the, the constitutional rigors, which uh, neither of us are experts in, but you are. So tell us what you thought about the decision. It's a horrible decision. I'm not going to mince words about this. I want to just say one piece of background first. In 1990, I worked for the Bush administration in the Department of Justice. And I litigated cases that were somewhat similar to this, and that the question in those cases in 1990 was what support were governments, state and federal, allowed to give to private religious schools? The key word being allowed, because back then the question was, did the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment prohibit this kind of financial assistance to religious schools or parents of children attending religious schools? That was the only question. What does the Establishment Clause allow? And I argued on behalf of the Bush administration, leaving aside my policy preferences, that the Establishment Clause allows states to assist religious schools if they're also assisting non-religious schools. But nobody, nobody in 1990, including the lawyer for the United States Catholic Conference, who was a co-defendant in the case, argued that the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment requires such aid. I want to be very clear about that. We argued it's allowed, but not required. And part of that was a states' rights kind of idea. If states want to help religious schools, fine. If they don't, fine. The case yesterday is the opposite. And Brianna, you kind of used the, used the wrong word. The issue mm -hmm. wasn't, is, it, is Maine allowed to do this? Is Maine forced to mm -hmm. do this? And the answer now is yes. Maine has no choice. If they want to assist children in rural areas for whom there is no close public school by giving the parents some financial assistance to attend a non-religious private school, it now has the constitutional obligation to help parents of children attending religious schools, which means Maine is using tax dollars uh, that many people in Maine don't want them to use to support a religious education. There is nothing in the text, history, um, or precedence of the Supreme Court, except for two Robert Sports decisions, which were based on nothing, to support this decision. So I, I, the bottom line on this is, for me, is Maine has the right to decide this for itself. And now the Supreme Court is saying, no, Maine, you do not have the right to decide this for yourself. You have to do what five or six unelected life tenured judges in Washington say you have to do. And just one last point on all of that. Um, there is not an originalist syllable in all three Roberts Court's cases that stand for the same principle of having to help religious schools. Not a single originalist syllable. And yet Thomas and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett, self-identified originalists, joined, joined this opinion even though it has no originalist basis whatsoever. So, Professor Siegel, what do you say to people who, who are framing this thusly? People who say, okay, but if Maine were allowed to pick and choose which institutions get, which educational institutions get state funding or federal funding, then that is them actually preferring some religions over, over another or preferring secular schools to religious schools in the way that amounts to a kind of establishment of religion. What's your response to that? So it's, it's state funding, not federal, first of sure. all. Sure. Um, well, that's important because, again, I think states' rights should be an issue here. But leaving that aside for the moment, 
Um, we have two provisions in the First Amendment. One is the Establishment Clause, which basically stands for the provision, for the idea that government can't help religion too much. And then we have the Free Exercise Clause, which says government can't punish religion. And there's always been, until the Roberts Court's opinions recently, a what we call a play in the joints. States are allowed to say, and by the way, most states do, that we're not going to support religious institutions. It's just something that, I mean, James Madison said that we shouldn't use tax dollars to support religion. I'm no originalist, but James Madison was not a dumb guy, and, and Jefferson too, and they had the right idea. All Maine is saying is we want to steer clear of using taxpayer money to support religion. And the Establishment Clause should clearly allow that. And no one's being punished here. If you're a parent in Maine and you live in a rural area where there's no close public school, Maine is willing to help you send your child to an equivalent private school to a public school. But an equivalent private school to a public school would not proselytize religion. The schools at issue in this case, the parents who won this case, want to send their kids to schools that proselytize religion. And taxpayer dollars should not and really can't under the Establishment Clause be used to proselytize religion until the Roberts Court decided it could just a few years ago. And I want to say this again. Maine is making a policy choice. Six unelected lawyers in Washington are overturning that policy choice. There's no text. There's no history. And the only precedent to support it are two recent Roberts Court decisions not based on text or history. In 1990, no one thought that this would be the case. What changed? Only one thing that changed. The religious nature of the people on the Supreme Court. Mm. Let's say the, the policy, Maine's policy, was to allow uh, public funding for, uh, for a, uh, Christian schools, but not Islamic schools. Do you th- that would, I imagine, would encounter some kind of legal challenge and not be deemed permissible. Um, uh, what, what, you yes. know, what's your view of that? And, and then is this so different from that? Uh, because okay. now we're saying, well, non-belief and belief, can't, you can't have a discrimination there, just as you would not be able to have a, a d- discriminatory regime between two different kinds of belief. Non-belief being a kind of belief in some sense. Sure. That's a great question. And it really is. And two things. First, even the most conservative justices, Rehnquist, Scalia, they, everybody, Alito, they would all agree you can't prefer one religion over another. You can't give money to Christian schools but not Jewish schools. Now, in practice, in most states, there are only two kinds of religious schools, Christian and Jewish. Now, of course, there are exceptions, but that's most of the schools in this country, and frankly, most of them are Christian. But no, you can't prefer one religion over another, but that's different than saying we're going to draw the line at religion versus non-religion when it comes to government aid, which is something this country has done for 200 years. Most states have constitutional provisions prohibiting the use of taxpayer dollars to support religion. And there's a good reason for that. We don't want religion and non-religion fighting each other. That's why we have an establishment clause. And we don't want my taxpayer dollars, I'm, I'm an agnostic, We don't want my taxpayer dollars funding religious education. It's just not fair to me. And that was the whole point of Jefferson and Madison. That was the whole point of the Establishment Clause. So we have a constitutional provision, a set of constitutional provisions, that say you can't treat one religion differently than another. 
And in some cases, you can't treat religion differently than non-religion. For example, in essential services like police and fire services, we're not going to say, well, we're not going to send them to a church. That's crazy. That was never the law. But until just a few years ago, the law was very clear. States could help religious schools if they want to. That's fine. But if they don't want to, there is no rule that they have to. And I would think that someone who wants government out of our lives um, would actually suggest that's a good rule because once the government starts giving financial assistance to religious schools, it can dictate conditions on those um, funding grants. And we don't want the government in that business whatsoever. So again, Maine has discretion. Maine can say only secular private schools, or it can say secular and religious private schools. That's up to Maine. But now the Supreme Court has said, no, it's not up to you. If you help secular schools, you must help religious schools. There is no provision in the Constitution requiring that. One last thing. The Equal Protection Clause would prohibit a state from helping Catholics but not Jews or Christians but not Muslims. We, are, we have a provision for that. We don't need anything in the First Amendment for that. We have the Equal Protection Clause. What the First Amendment stands for is government neutrality towards religion. The Roberts Court is turning that into a religious supremacy provision by reading the Establishment Clause out of the Constitution. And that's what it's done. It's there for a reason, but the Roberts Court has erased it. Professor Siegel, you were always so clear and so edifying. We appreciate you joining us today to discuss. My pleasure, and thank you very much. Thank you for bringing attention to this issue because this is this is a really um, it's a really bad case with really bad policy consequences. Mm. Well, we will continue discussing other cases coming down the pike from the courts, and have more rising for you after this. Every year, the U.S. military budget grows larger and larger, but a new piece of legislation would decrease U.S. military spending if passed. The People Over Pentagon Act would cut the Department of Defense budget by $100 billion and reinvest the money in non-military federal programs. The bill was introduced by Representatives Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan, the co-chairs of the Defense Spending Reduction Caucus. Policy analyst and advocate Stephen Semler is here to tell us more. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, yeah, tell us tell us more about this. What is what is your understanding here? Well, the bill is based on recommendations, or not recommendations, but policy proposals or options laid out by the Congressional Budget Office um, in October 2021 that outlined basically three different ways that the U.S. could reduce military spending by $1 trillion over 10 years. So this bill takes instruction from that. Um, and when the report was released, I was sort of wondering what shape legislation would take uh, based on the proposal or based on uh, the CBO report. Um, and here it is, the People Over Pentagon Act. But the crucial thing to remember is that um, because it's a conversion amendment, meaning that it advocates shifting funds from a bloated military budget to um, atrophied social programs, two things would have had to go wrong during the Biden administration during fiscal year, uh, uh, his 2023 request, meaning that military spending was too high and social spending was too low in the view of these progressives. So it was a sort of canary in a coal mine. I called it an indictment of, of Biden's, uh, not just military budget, but uh, spending priorities as a whole in the article. 
what, did we, what does the vote count look like for this? Do we have even a majority of Democrats on board? And if so, what's the likelihood that people are going to cross the aisle in support? There is this appetite, it, it does seem, on the right right now for kind of a, an anti-interventionism. Right. I'm not sure if the language um, advocating for converting uh, the funds to social programs will attract many Republicans. This is mm -hmm. the problem with um, Biden's social spending policies. If Biden had delivered fully on his campaign promises um, and Build Back Better passed, um, he didn't cut the infrastructure bill down by 75 percent, might be having a different conversation here where the bill would just say, um, we're just looking for an outright cut to reduce the U.S. military's overseas footprint and handouts to weapons contractors. But because of Biden's failures, I think congressional progressives were pressured um, to basically say, OK, well, if we're not going to get the money from from the White House, then we're going to have to take it from his military budget. So right now, I, I can't imagine that there's more than 20 co-sponsors to the bill. Um, and it'll be extremely difficult to even getting a vote on this thing. What do you make of the kind of ideological evolution going on in the two parties? You know, we're coming out of the an environment, the 90s, the aughts, et cetera, the, the Bush era Republican Party, uh, and really both parties being, you know, robustly pro-military, pro-foreign policy interventionism, pro-nation building, uh, tremendous bipartisan buy-in to that concept, with, you know, the Republicans being even more full-throated, but then uh, 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 eight year Democratic administration uh, disappointing many progressives on that front. And now, you know, with Ukraine, it's almost like the only opposition we're seeing from uh, Congress at all is actually coming from not most of the Republicans, but a, a small number of, of Republicans. And sort of anti-interventionism is again becoming more associated, I think, in some ways with the Republican Party than with uh, with the Democratic Party. Now, as you said, what this means for this bill is different because, you know, taking military spending and then converting it into uh, into welfare spending or anything like that is not exactly what uh, what Republicans have in mind. But, you know, what do you make of this kind of ideological evolution more generally? I'd say it's needed and we have to rely on it, or at least anti anti-war people and anti uh, imperialists. We have to rely on bipartisan support now, especially as you brought up the you know, recent $40 billion Ukraine aid bill. There's little oversight in the bill. Um, they pressed it to pass it urgently or like within days. Uh, but a lot of the equipment that it buys uh, has a 24 to 36 month setup and readying time. Um, so, and especially after the COVID funding was stripped um, from the Ukraine bill, they're supposed to be passed uh, together. They were originally tethered together, but Biden ordered the House to strip away the COVID funding to urgent to pass more quickly this Ukraine aid bill. Um, I was expecting Democrats just to vote against it on the basis of that alone. Uh, now that it was just nakedly just a, um, a military aid bill uh, that supports a strategy with no end in sight uh, other than conflict escalation. Um, so we need to rely on the, the Republicans who bothered to show up and actually protest the vote. Um, in the discourse that they had, that they that their reasoning for for opposing the bill, the amendment uh, was was I think solid, um, and I think something that should be adopted more widely throughout Congress. And we can't let uh, partisan disputes really get in the way. I'm worried that this war has become more and more part of the Biden administration's identity and the Democratic Party's identity, building off of uh, Russia's scare tactics beginning in you know circa 2014. 
2016. Stephen, I wanted to ask you, because you do follow this more closely, and sometimes this conversation gets had in, 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 in vague ways, but as someone who is really looking at both the trajectory of military spending and the attitudes around it, there has been some, there have been divisions on the left where some folks think that leftists who would give credit to a certain strain of anti-interventionism on the right are giving too much credit, saying that it's largely superficial um, and inconsistent, and that when leftists say things like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is getting to the left as squad members on some of these issues with, re regarding military spending, they're giving Marjorie Taylor Greene or people like that uh, too much credit how do you see that debate? And you know, do you think there is a role in pressuring Democratic politicians by talking about the growing appetite for um, lowering war spend, defense spending among Republicans? I think as advocates, as activists, as general public, when we have a bill that does something bad or a bill that does something good, um, our goal is to win votes, not necessarily to win people over. Um, so I, I don't really have too much concern of about, uh, you know, pointing to Republicans who, you know, who I otherwise disagree with. Um, if they're right for the thing that we're fighting for, then, then so be it. That's fine. Um, I don't really see much value uh, in the people themselves. I, I, feel, I feel good about the arguments that they have made um, in the past about Ukraine or the concerns that they brought up, or at least... Uh, a, a chunk of them. Um, and it's important to, you know, get the Democrats head on straight, you know, regarding this, because mm -hmm. they're right now, um, so far in 2023, they are the party of war. Both parties are, but they're, they're really, you know, leaning that way and that they haven't really protested. Um, again, a strategy in Ukraine that comes down to arms dumping. And I say that seriously, not just cynically, um, there really just is a disengagement um, from the Biden administration about pursuing diplomatic outcomes. Um, and, you know, they're saying, oh, we'll just leave it up to Ukrainians. It's like, that's a tough thing to just sort of, it's a cop out basically, because we're providing, you know, tens of billions in equipment and we have our finger on the trigger of, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of sanctions. So we have to be part of this discussion. Um, and if we wanted to move the conflict closer to a resolution, we, we definitely have the power to do that. Mm. Yeah. No, absolutely. A, a point taken. You know, it's it's something I've experienced with uh, progressive Democrats, like so, uh, Democratic Socialists, Democrat, people I disagree with on everything, but then are the people I invariably agree with most or identify with most on foreign policy. And you know, it's the same with and then Republicans, the ones, you know, to, that you're told are, are totally the most crazy of all are invariably the ones who are who I agree with on these policies or who are uh, the only ones sounding the alarm about uh, about some of this stuff. So you, you, the bipartisan consensus in the kind of middle place, which I might agree with on other issues, it's not always right. It's certainly been not right from, you know, from my perspective, from our perspective on uh, on foreign policy. So, Stephen, thank you so much uh, for joining us. My pleasure. And thanks for the good questions. And we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Today, officials announced that Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, will be demolished in the wake of last month's shooting, with Mayor Don McLaughlin telling reporters, quote, you can never ask a child to go back or a teacher to go back in that school ever. 
Investigations into Uvalde police's response to the massacre continue to spark massive and justified outrage. McLaughlin says the city cannot release sensitive information related to the shooting at this time, claiming the city's lack of transparency is intended to protect the investigation's integrity, which is BS. He also confirmed the city will not release police body cam video. Also outrageous, yesterday the Texas Department of Public Safety strongly condemned the police response as a, quote, abject failure. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. Hmm. Yeah, I, there's no way you can mince words about this. There's no language that is too strong, not just because of the actual malfeasance, but because now looking back at those early days of disclosures from the Uvalde Police Department, it's just lie after lie after lie that they've been caught in. Um, there's a complete lack of confidence here. And I, I don't know how anybody in this moment could, one, be defending increasing funding to departments like this when departments who have had all of this funding, who have SWAT teams, literally stood in a hallway before a potentially unlocked door with full battle gear, expensive equipment that was life protecting and chose not to go in and save the lives of They should be like exiled to Antarctica. I mean, this is just so contemptible, so craven, so such a failure um, that people people died because of it. And, and again, they had they had the training. They can't say, well, we don't know how to handle a situation like this. Maybe you could have said that at Columbine when, when there, was, uh, there was not the, – the police waited outside. They, they didn't understand what this kind of situation calls for. Now we know. Yeah. We have 20 years of this kind of thing, number of incidents. We know. And they were trained. They were told, here are the instructions. Here's what you do. Put your body in front of the bullets as fast as possible if you're the police. And uh, and and they they didn't do it. They didn't even they didn't try the door. It might have been door. unlocked, or maybe I'm, I'm not sure if we have confirmation it was unlocked. It very well might have been unlocked. They had that. They had the the shield. They had the we shield. can see from the body cam uh, from, the, from uh, the surveillance, surveillance footage, footage. They had the shield. Yep. Um. And and there's and there's more. You want to read yeah. this new wrinkle? More horrifying details about what happened inside Rob Elementary School continue to shock us. We now know that Eva Morales, one of the two teachers killed, called her husband as she lay shot and dying and asked him for help. Her husband, a police officer for the Uvalde School District, then attempted to move toward the classrooms where Morales was trapped. However, other officers on the scene detained him, took his gun away, and escorted him out of the room. So he was doing... What you're supposed to do, which is go go rush the shooter, you know, fearing for his his uh, fearing correctly for his wife's life, she died, uh, be, possibly because help did not come fast enough. I mean, that's the th like in this situation, the people in that room are shot and dying. Some of them dead, some of them still alive. Some later died in the hospital or on the way to the hospital, and they're just standing around. They're just standing around while, while people who, who had loved ones in danger, like that police officer, like the parents outside, tried to help. And, and, the, and then the, the on-scene commander and, and others were like, no, 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 we got this. But they didn't get it. Yeah, to the extent that any of these law enforcement officers de deserved a presumption of good faith, it's long gone. 
it's long gone. I'm sorry. And now we're inclined to, I'm, I'm personal, I'll speak for myself, inclined to believe every bad fact that comes down the transom, you know, obviously, you know, in my personal right. capacity, not here, because so far, pretty much every, every one of them has borne fruit. Every trickle of new information that yes. makes the cops look very, very bad has borne fruit. And frankly, when I go back to our first days of coverage and look at all the benefit of the doubt we are extending to the cops, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed by it because they didn't earn it. And in fact, I don't know, it would be hard to, to design a worse outcome than this. It would, it, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe failure on this level was possible. Uh, it, it's just, I mean, there's not, we, we don't have the right framework to punish this level of wrongdoing. I'd like, they, again, they should be exiled to Antarctica or something. They yeah, I, I wonder to... if we're going to start to hear from, from folks um, <laughs> well, what like if this you're, widow. If you're this police officer who was held back, whose wife died, yeah. possibly because you couldn't get to her fast enough, and you were held back, I mean, how do you even, like, recover psychologically from something like that? Because there's, I mean, there's, just... there's this element of, okay, fine, I'll trust the authority figures, I'll trust the members of my own department. I understand, you know, you could think to yourself, I understand that there are protocol and that I could actually disrupt the efforts mm -hmm. to save these folks if I were to rush in and become a distraction. Okay, so fine, I'll let them to it. But that's, to me, the real tragedy of this, the idea that people right. who were willing to do the brave thing deferred to the police officers, deferred to the authority, believing them when they said that they had it. Right. And then to be confronted with that footage and, of them and, standing around in the hallway. Every rush in and attack the shooter is actually the right thing to do. It's actually what the recommendation is. The recommendation is not, okay, let's take our time. Let's get this right. Let's take stock of the situation. Let's make sure we got all the gear. Is that door locked? Well, let's get a key in here just in case. Do we, have, do we have snipers? Do we have more body armor? Do we have more shields? Do we have more backup? Do we have more people? That is not what you're supposed to do. That's not what you're supposed to do. And, and, they, and then they try, they try to read, they try to call to him. They try to, you don't, you can't reason with this, per, this kind of person in this scenario. Right, the, it's the, never the part been shown. They, they asked the student to speak oh, they asked up. The students, the, are you still, oh. And the student called out and then that student got shot as a consequence, you know, which is like all against protocol uh, to ask the students to vocalize. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know, man. Real bad. Yeah, and, what and can you say? What, like what is left to be yeah. said? And we're going to keep hearing more because I suspect we're going to hear more from family members. Uh, more details will emerge. Mm -hmm. I, I'm especially interested to hear from this um, widow cop because he probably has some significant insights into what's going on in the department. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the fact that there were so many people on the scene and the uniform response, you know, that, that all of these police officers basically apparently followed their order not to go into the room. It, it almost feels like a Milgram experiment situation mm -hmm. where, you know, there was there's somebody who authoritatively must have been saying, like, don't do the obvious thing that we should do. And I know that people have to be really, really wrestling with their own personal demons as they question why it's what seems so clear at, at the time in retrospect, Monday morning quarterbacking was in the course of action. Mm -hmm. uh, but we will continue to cover this story as details emerge. Oh, we're horrified for, for whatever is next, but yeah. uh, we will cover it, whatever it is. And we'll have more rising for you after this. The Supreme Court has ruled that Maine violated the Constitution when it refused to make public funding available for students to attend schools that provide religious instruction. The opinion, given by Chief Justice Roberts, provided a clear sentiment that when state and local governments choose to subsidize private schools, 
that must allow families to use taxpayer funds to pay for religious schools. Justice Sonia Sotomayor came out against the ruling, accusing conservatives on the court of attempting to end the separation between church and state. She wrote in her dissent, in just a few years, the court has upended constitutional doctrine, shifting from a rule that permits states to decline to fund religious organizations to one that requires states in many circumstances to subsidize religious indoctrination with taxpayer dollars. Twitter user Lawboy writes, this case is even worse than it looks. In response to desegregation, conservatives began to build a network of private religious schools absorbing public funds, but not subject to the rules governing public education. This is part of that effort. Robbie, I suspect you said you we're going have... to disagree massively on yeah, this so one. Yeah, so what's your issue here? Why do you not have the, these establishment clause concerns? No, I, I think uh, that it is perfectly fine to fund religious education, uh, that the education dollars, should, as a matter of policy, I, the well, constitutional question. But that's not what the, the case says. The, the state actually is able to and has been funding uh, religious right. uh, education. The rule was that uh, the Maine was funding these schools, but they, and, and they may be affiliated with or even run by religious organizations, but their actual curricula just had to align with state standards. Two families challenged that limitation. And, and before recently, that claim would have been, this is according to an article in, this, in Slate, would have been laughed out of court because SCOTUS only permitted states to subsidize religious schools beginning in 2002. Now it's saying that if the state says it wants to have any standards, this is for, from, a, from a libertarian, the state has now said that it wants to have standards about what kind of curriculum is happening in these religiously funded schools. And that's what's, what was at issue right, in this case. Right, it can't do that. Right, so you don't think that the the federal government sending federal dollars to kids to sending parents your dollars, who want to your dollars yeah, yeah who parents who want to because they're in these rural parts of Maine completely understandable have access to schools that aren't necessarily the public schools that right. don't provide sufficient support to their community should at least adhere to the same kind of federal standards that happen in that are promulgated. Well, they have to be accredited. In, they have to be legitimate. Well, no. They, the, the argument here is that they should have to give a secular education and not an, a purely religious education. That that's the standard that the government shouldn't right. be paying for kids to get a religious education. How is that? It's paying an issue? for them to get whatever education their families, the kids, think is in their best interest. Well, the argument we are publicly funding education, but we don't need to have education provided by the government. We can let. We but can this let a million flowers bloom. No, it's that's, funded that's the by issue. the government. It's so, funded, by, it's funded by you and by your tax this, dollars. Uh, Robbie, should the government fund a public school devoting, devoted to uh, drag performances and which educates kids exclusively on CRT and uh, hormone replacement therapy, gender affirming therapy? I think the family should get the money and can use that money toward their child's education for whatever education they okay, think is so, best. And if so some when, liberal family thinks that education so is when, best and that school okay. meets accreditation standards, so that the, is perfectly fine So when the Church of Satan drag school opens in rural Maine or whatever, whatever fear-mongering... Liberals don't understand what we actually think. Your terms are acceptable. Yes, no, absolutely, no, fine. No, your terms, Robbie, perhaps because you're a libertarian are willing to take mm -hmm. the line, but you know very well that this is a context-dependent outcome and that the whole 
whole problem with these establishment law cases is that they have to pick and choose which religions and which beliefs are legitimate and which aren't. That's exactly that's why that's why separating minute, religion minute, from minute, all minute, other minute, kinds of minute. belief doesn't make any that, sense. That is exactly the scenario the founding fathers intended to avoid. You should not be establishing one religion over the other, and because you cannot get in this game, they're not establishing. This is not that. establishing one over the other. They're saying if it's religion, doesn't matter. It's, it's saying the state no. can't make a choice. To, to decide what kinds of institutions, to set exactly. any standard for what institutions get funded by federal tax dollars. Right. And I think that in any other context, people under, would believe that there has to be some basic educational standard that's in place. You wouldn't There has say, to be a basic educational standard because it has to meet school accreditation. But it standards. doesn't. It can't not be a it school. It doesn't. But what the, well, it can't schools, not be a school to, in, in order these to... These schools be, are no longer required to give a secular education. That means the school can sit there and that's teach not the same as that I'm dinosaurs saying. lived at the same time as man uh, and that, you know, uh, Jesus, whatever, right. whatever religious tradition you have, is the, whether you're Muslim it could be Muslim, or Jewish it could be Jewish, or Hindu could be, yeah. or what have you, or the yeah. Church of the Spaghetti Monster. Yeah, that's The school fine. can say, well, the Spaghetti Monster people, the Church of Satan... We, this is what we believe. We're I have no give, fear of the Church of State. We're gonna give. We're gonna give instruction in this kind of thing. And right. regardless if, if there's math or discipline, you have conservatives all over the country upset because math is somehow being CRT'd and math is right. racist and all that. Fine, I grant they're you. They're upset because there's no alternative. Uh, there's upset because no, no, new no. liberals that's have said this upset. is universally what the only curriculum can that's, be and should be. That's not at all what's happening, Rob. I'm saying it's, let's just de we can de-escalate this happening. battle. Instead of having this intense culture war over what all schools are forced to teach, we can de-escalate by saying, you know what? You and your family can choose the right. school that and aligns with you, no, and that's great. And you and your family can do that. We don't fine. need to battle each other anymore. We don't need to decide this. Robbie, uh, as a libertarian, that choice is fine. But you cannot then say, I'm a libertarian. I want people independently to make their own kind of choices mm -hmm. and go to whatever school they want. And then say, also, though, I'm going to co-opt federal tax dollars to support schools without any kind of basic secular educational standard, explicitly by saying that they can promulgate a religious and exclusively religious without a secular standard for education. They are saying tax dollars are establishing religious doctrine in an educational context. I don't understand. Look, I have no problem. It's fine. If, if Maine wants, Maine here, let, let's really, really be clear about what's happening. Maine fully did and has been doing funding for religious institutions, religious schools. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. This isn't big, bad liberals saying, oh my gosh, I don't want Catholic schools or whatever to be funded. The government has been doing that and Maine has been doing that. The question is whether or not they should have to provide a basic secular education standard if they are going to take federal funds. I have a hard time understanding why that's objectionable. That, you mean they, the, if they're, they can, they should be able to take the, the fund, the, it, it's it's our money. It's it's letting it, the the people take the money that comes from their taxes that the government confiscates to provide an education, and saying they can use that to get the educational environment that best fits their needs. And if that's a religious environment, what do you mean like secular standards? Like they still teach. They have to meet the accreditation standards to be a school. You can't just like send. You can't send your kids to a school that doesn't meet accreditation standards. Period. I I, I don't know what that means. All I know is that. And apparently, these parents were so upset by like the, if you want to homeschool your kids, idea, you have to meet certain requirements. Even the, these parents were so upset. The people who brought this case right. were so upset about whatever these basic secular education standards are that they took this case to the Supreme Court. So that's what's at issue here. There's no. There, this is not. And, and from a federalism perspective, from a states' rights perspective, it is very curious to me that conservatives wouldn't question why you have a state. A conservative state 
that has decided... They can't discriminate against religious belief. No. That's what they're saying. Before, it's before 2002, states weren't even permitted to fund religious institutions. Right. Now the pendulum has swung and said, okay, you can do it because there's... I hope it keeps swinging. There's a basic acknowledgement that the public education system isn't sufficiently serving kids in this country. Fair enough. I would argue that as for a host of reasons, including, as we mentioned in the in the read at the top, that a lot of money was pulled out of the public edu- education system during white flight when desegregation happened. Schools were integrated and so many white families decided that they were going to take their tax dollars and run rather than have their kids go to school with black kids. I mean, that's just the history of how we got this massive public, uh, private education system that didn't used to exist before. Americans used to realize that we really valued and we're very proud of our public education system before everyone was equally served if by If the it. public education system is meeting families' needs, they can, in, they can go that route. If it's not, they should be able to... Where your, your zip code should not determine what school you have to go to. You should just right. get that money and, and do what's best for you and in consultation with your family. So, school, again, it is, you know, Maine has mm-hmm. been, and you are allowed, permitted to subsidize, the, the state subsidizes religious institutions, right? That, but this is a, court, a radical theory about. to a new extreme. Ordering Maine, no, this case is about ordering Maine. Not to, that Maine has the choice to fund right. religious institutions. This is a, right. like a federalism issue. Should it, should They're a saying it violates, it's discriminatory against religion for them to not right. set aside funds for this kind so of I, I, I'm very interested That's to what see. They're saying. I personally am a subscriber to the Church of the Spaghetti Monster. So what if, so if, if Maine I, had said you can use this money on any school but not a Muslim school? Mm-hmm. Now they can't because of the Supreme Court decision. Well, the Supreme Court decision is saying, no, you can't discriminate no. against religious belief. If, Which if, I applaud. No, if, I, and I, it, school, you should absolutely be able to take no, the public money and no, get a, a, no, Robbie, a Muslim. As, as I'm reading this, the issue is that if the Muslim school has a secular education opportunity, like many Catholic schools do, and like many of these schools do, then it's not an issue. You cannot just you cannot withhold. Say that again. You cannot withhold. What do you mean the, a secular education opportunity? Carson if you go to a religious to school, quality you're civic going education to... to every child in the state. The government created a tuition assistance program to help families who live in remote, sparsely populated regions without any public schools. Under the program, parents can send their kids to certain private schools, and the state covers the cost of tuition. Right. To qualify, these schools must, must give students a secular education. They may be affiliated with or even run by a religious organization, but their actual curriculum must ally with secular states. Well, they all get a secular education. I mean, math does not have a religious Evidently component, not, Robbie. right? Evidently not. And that's and that's what's at issue here. So you cannot discriminate against a school because it's a Christian school or a Muslim school right. or a Jewish school, but you can discriminate against them based based on their not rising to the basic curriculum responsibility. And I think you shouldn't be able to do that. And the Supreme Court agrees with me. So it's there was a, a Muslim school uh, a, so, a group advocacy group that was part of the people filing suit here because they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah. my grandfather was Muslim. I'm certainly not. This isn't about me picking and choosing religions. My whole point is that the state shouldn't be in the business of having to decide one day that is one doesn't want to fund the spaghetti monsters pole dancing class for kids, which I know that many conservatives and many liberals would have an issue See, I don't with. have this battle anymore. That's fine. Yeah, that, you, you do you, your family do you, and that should be the way it goes. And we don't have to have these intense wars over it at the atomic national level if we can just let people be different. It's fine. 
And I think the Constitution and the Founding Fathers. Oh, now we're gonna. Oh, now who's the strict constitutionalist? It's not about Didn't being you just the strict say the Constitution just gets in our way of doing whatever we sh policy we think should be best? No, I think that you okay, should decide. Okay, let's do it. This you should look at what society is and what what core values you have as a community. And I think one of our core values as a community is that the government should not be in the business of deciding which religions are real and which aren't. Which is obviously what always has to happen when you're talking about tax. Well, this gets us out of that business. There's no difference between religious what, practice or Robbie, any other when practice. You're talking about so you just have. To, if, as long as it's a school. When you're talking about tax breaks or religious institutions or any other context where the government is deciding who qualifies for financial benefit on the basis of being a religion. Mm. But All right. Well, I knew we were going to disagree on this one, so it's, it's nice to get a, a real debate on it. So tomorrow on Rising, maybe we'll talk about this more. I think we could have gone on for a while. But also, Stephen Semler will join us to break down a new bill that could drain as much as $100 billion from the Department of Defense's budget. Licking my lips. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who'd like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Have a good one, and we will see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Well, we have some breaking news from the Supreme Court. A lot of interesting decisions just came out. So the court ruled that the Constitution guarantees the right to carry a gun outside the home, solidifying the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. The court in this decision, this is the Bruin decision out of New York, was 6-3 in favor of gun owners. Uh, so the specifics of this case uh, were kind of interesting. New York law said that in order to apply to carry a concealed handgun outdoors, you had to demonstrate um, a special need to have a gun. Uh, the exact language is demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. And so Justice Thomas writes that that limit on who can carry guns violates the Second Amendment um, in this decision, which is with all the conservatives on one side and then Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer on the other. So uh, basically, this it's just this It's not you know saying that you all per, sort of the permitting process to have a gun everywhere is overturned, but that this specific provision violates the Second Amendment. Yeah, and there is some dicta which suggests that it's, you know, of course settled that Clarence Thomas writes that it's, you know, everybody understands that there's certain places where you're still not going to be able to carry a gun, like courtrooms, et cetera, where there's particular vulnerabilities. But uh, many people are saying this is a, a real blow against any kind of gun reform, you know, gun restrictions, no matter how minimum, that most people kind of support. And the question becomes, if you are an 18-year-old of legal age to carry a gun and you're licensed and permitted, can you take a concealed gun to school? Can you take a concealed gun into other kinds of public places that are sensitive? Do you carry one to class if you're in college? Do you carry one into a police station, into a courtroom? Do you into a hospital. We just had a hospital shooting just a couple of weeks ago. Into the grocery store. I, you know, yeah. some people are going to say that makes them feel a lot more safe. Other people are going to disagree. But I don't know if this decision is changing. I mean, this is breaking news, so we're, <laughs> we're trying to process what the decision says. I'm not sure this decision is changing where you're allowed to conceal uh, carry. I think it, it, it really it's just about the process of applying for a license yeah. and whether the, that the extra... Special. Yeah. Right, that special provision. What's interesting about this law, so what New York was trying to do is what Switzerland does. And Switzerland is an interesting country to kind of model gun laws after because they have a very um, robust gun culture. In fact, that's why they're not a part of the EU is because they didn't want to give up their weapons. They, 
Uh, everybody is conscripted. They all carry their fully automatic weapons. They keep them at home. They do have some laws like the ammunition for their fully automatic weapons do have to be kept in a like a community armory type situation. You see in Switzerland, people riding little, you know, teenagers riding their bikes with their guns strapped to their backs. It's a it's a really robust gun culture in Switzerland. The one thing they do, though, even though people are allowed to have these fully automatic weapons and then they actually once they're no longer in the military, they modify those weapons to make them semi-automatic, similar to the AR-15s that we have here in the United States. Um, one thing that they do, though, is they limit handgun use. So they say you cannot have a handgun in Switzerland. They believe those are more dangerous, actually. You can't have They're a correct. handgun. Well, and they say you can't have a handgun unless you can show special need for mm. that handgun. So those would include things like if you are a security guard, if you are driving an armored vehicle, you know, transferring money for a bank, if you are in need because you're afraid for your life for some reason, you've got a threat on your life, and you, pr you apply for these handgun licenses in Switzerland, I believe it's every nine months you have to reapply and show that need continues to exist after that nine month time period. So interesting, New York was trying to sort of follow that law a little bit. Um, with a country that has a very robust gun culture that maybe people here in the United States would really uh, like their way of handling some of the gun laws. I, when you really study Switzerland's gun laws, they have very fascinating laws. Like like you have to keep the ammunition separate from the actual weapon. You can only have so many um, you know, bullets loaded at a time when you're keeping your gun somewhere. So they, they have all of these interesting safety laws. But one of them, their most, I would say, their strictest law is the handgun law. You can't have a handgun there unless you show special need. But well, apparently, as, right, as not I constitutional in this country. Pointed out uh, a number of times, right, handguns kill just far more, far, 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 far more people. Um, so by the, so this is from Thomas's majority decision. He says the vast majority of states, 43 by our count, are shall issue jurisdictions where authorities must issue concealed carry licenses whenever applicants satisfy certain threshold requirements. So there's still requirements uh, without granting licensing officials discretion to deny licenses based on a perceived lack of need uh, for the for the weapon. But the, so there were six states, including D.C. and New York, where it was where the the they could. The authorities could say, we don't think you have a need for this gun, so you're going to be denied the gun, mm -hmm. like, like you're saying in Switzerland. I mean, yeah. it's, it's interesting, given how much brouhaha there's been from Supreme Court justices about ramping up their own personal protection. Obviously, they can apply for congressional funds to keep them safe from people who might wish them harm outside of their houses. And I wonder, you know, now this law struck down in D.C., are people who would like to open carry or, have, sorry, conceal carry while they're protesting, a Supreme Court justice house going to be more able to get a permit to do so? I don't know. It's an interesting question. I certainly wouldn't want someone to have more access to carry a concealed weapon to protest outside of my establishment, outside of, uh, you know, inside of my home. But, you know, it does feel like there's a real short-sightedness to some of this stuff. But, you know, people will have to live with the consequences and, you know, public people. figures in particular. I, I mean, people listen, I want to conceal carry when the protesters slash rioters come through and burning everything and destroying everything, which they had 
uh, were able to Which no one is doing in front of Supreme Court of justices' houses, even as they remarkably attack the First Amendment rights and other constitutional protections extended to no other Americans, as we discussed Supreme elsewhere in today's houses. segment. So I think first Can and I foremost, say, we can't pretend that these amendment rights, every time that there is a rule like this, there are winners and losers. And I think we should be having open, respectful conversations about who the winners and losers are, but pretending that there aren't significant losers every time a law like this comes down the pike. I mean, many people are pointing out that at the time of the First Amendment, the bullet had not been invented, sorry, the Second Amendment, the bullet had not been invented yet. And a strict originalist might say, okay, none of these Second Amendment laws, laws apply to any of these okay, guns that we okay. have but today. But at the time of the First Amendment, uh, the, the email wasn't invented, but the, it applies to, that's just a different kind of speech, just the way yeah, and that's the, the, the rifle is a different kind of people musket. excluding all kinds of rights when it's convenient. So the point here is there's very little in the way of principles here. But to depend on rules and the wisdom of people that really did not contemplate the level of violence that we can inflict on, on each other today, you know, it's worth having a conversation. So regardless, we have all agreed as a society that the Second Amendment deserves protecting. The question is what caveats exist to also protect the right to life, liberty, and freedom that the rest of Americans should expect and should have guaranteed, despite living in a country where there are a lot of people who would like to use those guns to, to cause us harm. And after we've seen events like Uvalde that have demonstrated that having many people armed and prepared on the scene doesn't necessarily stop enormous amounts of tragedy. I, w I will say I grew up in Idaho, a red state where people are, are carrying weapons everywhere. Um, before I moved here to Los Angeles, I was living in Texas. I, I recently found out, for example, that a, a lifelong friend of my dad's, he's been friends with him since they were in like elementary school, recently just found out that he carries a gun everywhere. I mean, we were surprised. We we're like, really? You carry a gun? He's like, oh, yeah, I got my gun right here. Never knew he carried that gun. Um, several of my of other people I know, I, I never knew until they told me that they were carrying a gun everywhere they went. Every time I saw them, they always had their gun. Same thing in Texas. I, I once I had a stalker for a minute there in Texas. And then when I told a lot of my guy friends, oh, I have a stalker, I could not believe how many of my guy friends said, well, I got my gun. You know, I'm, I'm carrying my gun everywhere I go. I, I, I've actually been very surprised to find out the number of people in my life and just around who carry, who can, who, who conceal yeah, carry same. A lot on of a regular my relatives basis. Are, are gun carriers as well. They're looked a little bit differently by the public when people in my family carry guns, but they definitely carry guns and I respect the right, their right to do so. Whether or not there should be very minimal uh, restrictions on people's ability to con have concealed guns uh, in public, however, I think is a, is a little bit of a different, a different question. And now we're all gonna live with the consequences of those limitations being gone. Bree and I have gotten more combative with each other in your absence, Kim. We need you, I, we I, need you I, here to, I, to balance us out. It sounds like it. <laughs> it sounds like it. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky will be here, of course, for Rising Fridays. They'll be covering new approval ratings for President Biden uh, and all things inflation, the war in Ukraine, and, of course, COVID. All right, guys, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Glad to be back. Glad to see you all. Glad to be here trying to trying to uh, be the, the deal, the tiebreaker between <laughs> Robbie and Bree. Which is so funny because when it's you and Ryan, then I'm the one in the middle. And yeah, we, that's we, true. Like, we take turns being the who's the referee of the, uh, right, yes. of the discussion. I get to be the referee between you two, though, so it's fun. <laughs> it's fun to be, you know, that person once in a while. <laughs> all right, guys, thank you guys so much for watching. Be sure to uh, find us on podcasts everywhere you listen to podcasts. There we are. And we will see you guys next week. Ryan and Emily will be here tomorrow. So see you guys then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.